0: If you have your Bibles with you, I would invite you to turn to the book of Exodus. And I am very excited this evening to be beginning a new series in the Old Testament book of Exodus. I don't know if you know this, but apart from the Lord Jesus Christ, Moses is my favorite character in all of the Bible. My favorite film that I try to watch some of every year is The Ten Commandments with Charlton Heston. When we were first married and found out that... Uh, We were about to have a son. I looked at my wife, Deb, and I said, You know what's a really good name for a boy? Moses. She just kind of shook her head. After Peter was born and then Daniel was about ready to come along, I looked and I said, Well, what about a middle name? Moses is a great middle name for a boy. She said, Don't even get started with me. Well, the years went on and we moved to Jackson, Mississippi, and we had three boys, none named Moses a daughter, and we decided to get a dog, and I looked at my wife and looked into her eyes deeply and said, the dog's name is Moses, and, and it was. So uh, I have a great love for this uh, story. It is a great picture of the redemption of sinners by the work of God. There is perhaps no better picture in the Bible acted out in the redemption of the Israelites. And so if you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. For the word of the Lord is completely without error. The word of the Lord is completely sufficient. And the word of the Lord is completely authoritative. Exodus chapter 1. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household. Reuben, Simeon, Levi and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun and Benjamin, Dan and Naphtali, Gad and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died. Let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply, and if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us, and escape from the land. Therefore they set taskmasters over them, to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Python and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. When you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but the male, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, "Why have you done this and let the male children live?" The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God God dealt well with the midwives. And the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. Let's pray together. O Lord, our God, Lord, we ask this evening that you would speak to us through your word, that even through the trials and oppression that have come upon your people, We might see the great hope that comes from being called by your name. Lord, bless us this evening. This we ask in Christ's precious name. Amen. Well, this evening we are looking at the book of Exodus. It is a book that is well known to many believers. It is the story of God's great redemption of Israel... ...from bondage in Egypt. And this redemption of the Israelites... ...is also typical of the redemption of sinners... ...from the bondage of sin and death. A redemption that has been accomplished by the work... ...of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we can learn, I think, much from the book of Exodus... ...about how God relates to His people. About how He affects their salvation how he has redeemed them, the reason why he redeemed them, and the end to which he has redeemed them. And this first chapter, I think, is especially instructive to us because it describes for us a circumstance of life that is very difficult to deal with. That is, suffering. We will see, Lord willing, that God has a plan and a purpose for His people, even in their suffering, and that He does not abandon them in their suffering, but rather He ultimately blesses them in the midst of their suffering. In many ways, Exodus chapter 1 sets the stage for this great drama of redemption that God enacts on behalf of the Israelites. It shows us God's covenantal faithfulness to His people, His provision for them in their suffering. This chapter shows us that all of God's dealings with His people are by way of grace and that their greatest hope is relying upon God and His faithfulness. And so this evening, Lord willing, I'd like us to see three things from our text. First, we see that God's covenant is a blessing to His people. Second, we see that because the world is at war with God, God's people are bound to suffer. And then third, we see that even in suffering, God is with His people, preparing them for grace, protecting them and claiming them as His own. Let's begin then by looking at the fact that God's covenant is a blessing to His people. And we see this from the very beginnings of, of this ch- chapter and this book. This first chapter begins in a rather odd and actually seemingly unimportant fashion, doesn't it? These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household Reuben, Simeon, Levi and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Now, this isn't the way we expect this book to begin, is it? We might expect it to begin with a description of the horrible sufferings of the Israelites under the hands of the Egyptians. Or perhaps we might expected to begin with Moses on the mountain, Mount Gerizim, recounting the 40 years that have gone by and all the things that God has done. And we get that impression from the title of the book that we have, right? Exodus. It means a going out. And we're ready to see that action happen. But it, even though it's obvious that that is the pivotal event described in this book, the way this book begins and its Hebrew name is very intriguing. The Hebrew name for this book is not Exodus. The Hebrew name for this book is, these are the names. It is the first line of the book. And this would seem to be important in in at least two respects. The the book begins actually with a conjunction. We talked about that this morning in terms of Hebrew narrative and and. And these are the names or some translations have it. Now these are the names. And there is an obvious connection that this book is drawing to the book that precedes it. The book of Genesis. And the names themselves actually remind us of the specific context of the book of Genesis. So we might ask ourselves, why is Moses beginning trying to draw our attention to the connection with Genesis? Is there any reason for this beyond the fact that Exodus follows Genesis in our Bibles? And I think there is. There is a reason, and the reason is that this entire story of blessing and suffering occurs within the context of the covenant of God. Look down with me for just a moment at verse 7. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Now, this... Verse is filled with more than a demographic statement about how many people are in the nation of Israel. Don't look too quickly at this verse because what this verse has just done in a very compact fashion is it has described God's fulfillment of His covenant promise to Abraham hundreds of years before you remember that God promised Abraham that he would make his descendants as innumerable as the sand on the seashore, as the stars in the sky. And in this one brief statement, Moses tells us that God keeps his promise. That it has come true. God had promised Abraham that he would make of him a great nation and that his descendants would be without number. And so on that basis, he called him out of his land. This is the fulfillment of that great promise. But I want you to see something else as well. The promises of God are grand and great. But the fulfillment often comes by ordinary means. You see, we often in our lives long for some sort of grand event. For God to make things very spectacular in our lives. We want to see writing in the sky... We want to see thunder and lightning. We want him to speak in an audible and booming voice to tell us what to do and how he is with us. But that's not how God relates to his people. He relates to them in a much more tender way. Notice how God fulfills that promise to Abraham. There is no spectacular event, is there? There's nothing we would call miraculous. No description of, for example, one of Jacob's descendants having a hundred children. No, God fulfills his covenant promise by means of his providence. We're told that the children of Israel were fruitful, which is indeed a blessing of God, and that they multiplied and grew. And I'm sure as the Israelites lived, the days seemed ordinary to them people seemed ordinary. They wouldn't have thought it was spectacular when one baby was born. They wouldn't have thought it was a grand cosmic event when there was a wedding that they attended. And yet, it was each of these events strung together over hundreds of years by the providence of God that God used to bring about a spectacular fulfillment ...of a 400-year-old promise. When they went down to Egypt, we are told, there were only 70 persons. Only 70. And yet, from such a small beginning, the Israelites grew such that the land was filled with them. The Egyptians actually feared them because of their numbers. We see this in verse 9. The people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us, they say. So what does that mean then for you and for me? It means we ought not to despise the small means that God uses to bring about His great purposes. We ought not to miss God in the ordinary details of life. God is present in your families now when you are blessed with children. It is the faithfulness of God that allows us to partake of that blessing. And so it was with the Israelites. This is especially true in the church today. There are so many that clamor for the grand and the glorious in the church. So many that despise the ordinary means reading Bible texts, baptisms, prayer, preaching. And yet it is these ordinary things, these things that seem so ordinary because they're weak upon week. Our order of service doesn't change week to week, does it? We don't have a special guest every other month. We don't have laser light shows or firecrackers that go off. You might think that it actually is a bit boring. We're going to pray again. Oh, we're going to hear the Bible read again. Oh, I guess we'll sing again but it is these things that the Lord has used in the hundreds of years to build up His church, both in depth and in width. We cannot despise the means that God has chosen to bring about His ways. But lest we think that God's covenantal blessings come to us by some form of merit, that we deserve, that somehow we are God's special people because we are special, the book also reminds us of this, and it goes through the names of the patriarchs. It actually lists their names. Now, why is it that, do you think, that the 12 patriarchs are actually named? Couldn't Moses just have said, Jacob's 12 sons? We use a convention like that very often. Why go through each name? We all know the names of the sons of Jacob. They're repeated a half dozen or more times in Scripture as a group. You might ask yourself, is this another one of these long genealogy type texts that are hard to read and lose our attention? No. I think there's more at work here. And we see this as we look at the names of those who are blessed by God. Who is it that are are those who are blessed by the Lord in His work? Well, first there's Reuben, who committed immorality with his father's wife. Next, there's Simeon and Levi, the murderers. Next, there's Judah, the adulterer. And each of the others, except for the providence of God, would have been the murderers of their brother Joseph this blessing falls on those who have nothing to offer on their behalf. They've squandered every right to claim God's blessing. The only thing they have is the fact that God keeps His covenant promises. And they can plead that. They can plead the promise of God. And it is even so with you and with me today. If you are in Christ today, You have no right to any blessing that you have received. The only thing that comes to you is the blessing through God in Christ. It is for the sake of his covenant promises that he has sworn and will not relent that he has made Jesus Christ a priest after the order of Melchizedek. He has counted Christ's righteousness as our own. He has seated us in the heavenly places, and He has blessed us with all blessings in Christ. And it is only for those reasons that we experience God's blessings. Now, God hasn't ceased to work in the way that He is at work here in Exodus. The great increase of the Israelites after the death of Joseph should remind us of God's great blessing on His church and the increase of the church after the death of Christ. The book of Acts begins by describing this explosive growth. And the history of the church is about the world turned upside down by the Lord. Secondly we see from our text this evening that God's people are bound to suffer. Now, when we remember that God always keeps His promises, we ought also to remember that He does not promise faith without suffering. As a result of the promise that God had given to Abraham, that his descendants were to be innumerable, they journeyed down into Egypt And they were afflicted there. And part of the promise was that they would leave that land of affliction with great blessings. That's the story of Genesis 15. The sufferings of Israel should not surprise us. God promised those sufferings. Now why would God do this? I think too often we view God as a being who is obligated to make our lives easy and happy. And if somehow they are not, he's fallen down on the job. When instead I think we need to view that God has a purpose for suffering in his people. There is a purposeful providence that is acting out here in Exodus and even in our lives. And in the book of Exodus we see that this suffering is purposeful in the sense that first... God wants to separate his people from the Canaanites. He takes them out of the land of Canaan into a place where they are separate, where they will not mix with false gods and idols. And he puts them in a land, specifically in Egypt, where they would not mix and mingle, where the Egyptians would not want to enfold them into their people. Do you think about how remarkable it is that the Israelites remained a completely distinct Identity for centuries in Egypt. This is the providence of God. You see, God brought them there for a reason to separate them out from the Canaanites. But secondly, He brings them there to begin to train their hearts and their minds. They have to look to the Lord. They know that they are unable in their own strength to find freedom, they know that they are enslaved. In bondage. And this is a picture for us of what it is like to live in bondage to sin. And so God is training them to hate bondage, to desire freedom, and to understand that freedom only comes by following the Lord. And then there's a third thing that will come about. And that is that God is going to judge the Egyptians and their gods. We will see this in weeks to come. But Israel has been brought to a place of suffering not only for their own purification, not only for their own training, but so God might judge the false gods of the world. And it is no different than God's dealings with His people today. Suffering for the people of God is not an option. It is a certainty. We need this lesson over and over again in 21st century America. Christians in the Sudan do not need to understand suffering comes to Christians. Christians in India do not need to be taught about suffering. They experience it all the time. But we here in America have come to a point where we believe it is our right to avoid all sorts of suffering when the Bible actually tells us the exact opposite. Paul puts it this way in Philippians 1. It has been granted to you for the sake of Christ that you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake. Now stop and think about that verse for a minute. God has granted it to you that you would suffer for the sake of Christ. Does that sound like a mistake? Does that sound like something God hasn't thought through? Jesus puts it this way. In the world you will have tribulation. Now we can try as hard as we can to change that verse to in the world you might possibly sometimes have small tribulation. But that's not what the text says. In the world you will have tribulation. But our hope is found in the rest of that verse where Jesus says, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And therefore, our attitude should be not only to look to God in our sufferings, but to see how we can glorify God in our sufferings. Peter puts it this way in 1 Peter 4, If anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God. In that name. Because the world is at odds with God. We should therefore not be surprised if we are mistreated. It is actually that our suffering is a sign not that God has abandoned us. But rather that we are identified with God. Because the world is hostile to our Lord. If we suffer in the world. That means the world sees the mark of the Lord our God upon us. Why are the Israelites mistreated by the Egyptians? Is it something they said? Is it something they did? Do they suffer because they're abandoned by God? Or because they're being punished by God? No, I think what we see here in our text is it is the very blessing of God that causes them to be the target of persecution. Look at verses 9 and 10. Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them. It is because God is blessing Israel that the Egyptians look upon them and begin to persecute them and make them an object of suffering. The world is at odds with the people of God because they are blessed by God. It is because of this blessing from the Lord that the Egyptians are fearful and angry. What the Egyptians had done was quickly forgotten the best services that had been rendered for them. They quickly forgot the hand of Joseph that delivered them from the famine. And it's not just that the king didn't remember Joseph. It is that he and all the other Egyptians began to hold Joseph in contempt. To find him as the enemy. Now think about how much contempt is heaped on Christianity in our world today. Christians, for example, are portrayed as haters of truth and knowledge. And you've heard me say this before. You know that every major Ivy League university began, founded by Christians, as a place to train ministers of the gospel. The church... And believers are those who founded truth in this nation. And yet somehow now, we are persecuted as haters of truth. This is a present affliction for the Israelites... Verses 13 and 14 describe the bitterness of their lives as they work as slaves and their lives are bitter with hard service, with mortar and brick, and in all kinds of work of the field. You can almost feel the agony and the pain that comes from these words. So, ask yourself this question. Who is suffering? It's ordinary people, isn't it? There's no description here of the Israelites. It's not that the elders are suffering. It's not that it's Moses and his family. This blessing was coming upon all of Israel and their families. And all of them were suffering. What are the circumstances of their suffering? It is the harshness of the service with which they are made to serve. They are made to serve with bitterness and hardness. Moses mentions this twice. And God did not forget about them. This suffering was intentional. You see that the Egyptians were trying to be as miserable as they could to the Israelites. It was not accidental. It was not something that just came with the job description. They're trying to make the bitterness as bitter as possible. They're trying to make the suffering as hard as possible. And this kind of suffering is also disheartening, isn't it? Their lives were made bitter, Moses tells us. Now, I want you to leave behind the impression that these are not flesh and blood people. That somehow because they're Bible people, they can deal with more. and they have... Specific things that happen to them that are uncommon in the world. No. The Israelites weren't joyous in their suffering. We don't hear that they were whistling during their slavery. This was a real challenge for them. They reacted just like you or I would. Under the burden of suffering. So how do they go on? What do we do when suffering comes to us? We see this in our third and final point, that God is with His people in their suffering. Now, notice what happens as a result of the affliction of Israel. A new king comes up over Egypt and he says, we need to... Make the people of Israel suffer. We need to deal shrewdly with them because we don't want them to grow. And so what happens? The more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied. The more they persecuted them, the more they were blessed. There is an even greater increase under the people of Israel. And so if we ask ourselves, is God absent here? The answer is manifestly, no. That God himself is involved not only in the increase of Israel, but in the reaction of the Egyptians to Israel. God is working out his purpose. Now you may say, wait a minute, pastor. I understand how God could be for Israel. But you can't possibly be saying that God was making the Egyptians... Be harsh to his people. Yes, that's exactly what I'm saying. And I'm saying that because of Psalm 105. The Lord made his people very fruitful, and he made them stronger than their foes. He turned their hearts to hate his people, to deal craftily with his servants. God's purpose here was to refine his people in the fires of suffering that God was responsible not only for the blessing of Israel, but even for the persecution that came from Egypt. Now this is manifestly obvious in our world today. Think of the two places in the world where the church has had a life of ease and a life of hardship. Europe and China. And tell me now where the church is thriving. Europe needs missionaries sent to Europe. We have missionaries in the United Kingdom. We have missionaries that go to Scotland, a hotbed of the Reformation. Holland is overrun with secularism, a place where the canons of Dort came out. The seat of the Westminster Assembly knows not the Lord. And yet in China, where Christians have been persecuted, where churches have been bombed and bulldozed, there the church grows by leaps and bounds because God is at work there. We ought never to mistake comfort and ease with our progress in the church and God's blessing. Because far too often the exact opposite is true. It is where Things are most challenging for the church. Where the people of God suffer most that the church grows and the gospel goes forward. Now, why does God visit his people this way in their suffering? I think first and foremost he does this to show the source of comfort that they have. That their comfort comes only from God. This is a great challenge that we have here in America today. Because for us, our comfort comes from our smartphones. Our comfort comes from our grocery stores. Our comfort comes from our 401ks. But you see, we need to understand that the only source of our comfort is God. Anything else that brings us comfort comes ultimately. ...from Him. And so the Lord is showing Israel and us through this story... ...that the only source of comfort for His people is God Himself. I think another reason that this suffering comes upon the people of God... ...is to wean them away from Egypt. Now, they had been in Egypt for some time. And we know from elsewhere in the Bible... That as they were in Egypt, the people of God had become involved in some level of idolatry in Egypt. Ezekiel chapter 20 verse 10 tells us this. Then I, God, said to them, Israel, Each of you, throw away the abominations which are before his eyes, and do not defile yourselves with the idols of Egypt. I am the Lord, your God. You see, the people of God had begun to turn to false gods. And God needed to make Egypt a place where they did not desire to stay, where they longed to be apart from, to go to serve the Lord separately and to be His people. It just makes sense. You know the story of Exodus. The people of Israel can't wait to get out. Now imagine if every Israelite had his own chariot. If every Israelite had a huge home, if every Israelite had food that was delicious and they could eat, and ten weeks of vacation a year, what would they say at that point if they were called to go and serve the Lord their God? You see, sometimes God needs to show us the vanity of the world to wean us away from it. I also think that God is using this suffering To point them to the promise that he has already given. Now the Israelites should have known from the promise to Abraham that God would deliver them. But they lacked the faith to believe that God would deliver them. Instead they thought God had forgotten them. And so God was found among his people to remind them that he had not forgotten them. That he would deliver them and that he would take them to be his own. So what does this mean then for us in conclusion? First, if you are here this evening and you do not know the Lord Jesus Christ, you need to know there is no hope outside of Christ. The Egyptians had benefited from their relationship with God's people. Pharaoh himself had been acknowledged by God with the work of Joseph. And Pharaoh had acknowledged God Because of Joseph's interpretations of his dreams. Their land had been blessed by God. And yet they continued to persist in their self-destructive course. There is no hope apart from Jesus. If you are here this evening and you know the Lord Jesus Christ. Then you cannot become too comfortable with this world. Egypt went seemingly quickly from a land of refuge to a land of bondage. The Israelites were ordinary people like you and me. Now, I want you to notice that Exodus does not speak of Moses or of the leaders or of all of the famous people that we will hear about later in this book. As this book opens up, we are Faced with ordinary people living ordinary lives in the face of God's extraordinary covenantal love. Remember that these are the people who were delivered from their sufferings by the Lord. Their great deliverer. It is no different thousands of years later for you and for me. We're ordinary people living ordinary lives in times of suffering and difficulty. And we need to look to the same Redeemer, the one who has purchased redemption for us by His very blood. We need to look to the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray.